0: So I'm going to read Luke 7:36 through 50, and um, miraculously it should appear on the screen behind me as well. So, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. This is um, Jesus. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she's a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now... Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said, You've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, She's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not account you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's just pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for your precious word to us, Lord. Thank you. Um, for recording this stuff in the first place Lord thank you for sending Jesus and giving us this account of um, so much of his life and so much of your truth and so much of your word we say Holy Spirit would you be our teacher today would you come and minister this word to us Lord we want to grow this morning we want to be fed on your living word this morning Lord so come have your way with us in Jesus name we ask Amen Amen Good So we're in our series on encounters, and this is where different people in Luke's gospel encounter Jesus. And today we've got two encounters. We've got this woman, doesn't have a name, she's called the sinful woman, and there's a Pharisee called Simon, and there are two encounters that we're going to look at today. But before we get into that, I mean, we're in this theatre today, isn't it an amazing space? I'm loving it. I was remembering, I I heard um, Ian McKellen say um, one time, you should never read William Shakespeare. You should never read William Shakespeare. It's true, it's not a joke, he said that. You should never read William Shakespeare. Don't, don't read a book by William Shakespeare. Go and see it. Go and see it performed. It was written to be seen, not read. You know, you get the full, emph- the full picture if you see it. And here we are with this, with this platform here. Now, the Bible is different. I'm going to say, read the Bible. Don't read Shakespeare. Read the Bible. Okay, it's God's word to you. Shakespeare wrote fiction, God wrote the truth. And it's his truth for you. You definitely should read the Bible. But actually today, the story is kind of a bit like a play, I think. You can actually see the play unfold before our eyes as we read God's word today. Luke's done such an amazing job of painting this graphic picture. Here we are in a theatre. I invite you just to journey through this little play with us today. We're going we're to just kind of read through it, and we're going to press pause now and then. But I want you to imagine this play unfolding before your eyes. It's very graphic. And the other thing I want to say is that we're going to be picking up three things as we go through. Three main themes. There's, we're looking mainly at forgiveness. I think this whole passage deals with forgiveness. And first of all, we're going to look at the offense of forgiveness, and then the necessity for forgiveness, and the response for forgiveness. Now, that's the order in which you bump into them in life. If you, if you, if you come along to forgiveness and you don't know about it, it can be a bit of an offense, And then you get it and you go, oh, I got it. There's a a necessity, there's a need. And then you respond to it. That's the sort of chronological order that you'd bump into those things. It's not actually the the order they come in the passage, though. So we're going to read the passage the way it's written, like a play. And we're going to kind of jump around on these points a little bit. So I hope that's okay. I hope that's not too confusing. I'm sure you'll be fine. So. Let's look at verse 36. You're going to need this as we, as we go through. The words are going to be up there, but it's kind of handy to have it in your hands as well. Then you get used to handling the word of God. So be looking at your Bible at the same time. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So, pause. So Simon was a Pharisee. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, it was a a specific sect and they were characterized by strict adherence to the law, strict adherence to written rules and traditions. They were considered by some people to be a bit pious, a bit holier than thou. Um, They didn't get on with Jesus too well. They felt threatened, their religious worldview felt threatened by Jesus and and in fact they plotted to kill Jesus. So these Pharisees, a bit of a mixed bunch really. And it says they were reclining at table. What does that mean? We don't recline at table, but they did. In their homes, they'd have low tables. If if you were invited for dinner, you wouldn't have a chair. You'd lie on the floor, so you'd be leaning on your elbow with your head next to the table. You'd be reaching over, grabbing the food, and your feet would be over there somewhere, away from the table. Feet were considered a bit, you know, unclean, for good reason, I suppose. And they'd be over there somewhere. And that's important, feet are over there somewhere. So that's, that's how they'd eat. I mean, it sounds like an awful position to eat for me. I'm sure you'd get indigestion, but nevertheless, that seemed to be the way they did things. So verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... Behold, it's like a theatrical term. She breaks into the scene. You've got Simon, very prim and proper. He's probably got some ph- Pharisee friends come along. That's who his, his colleagues are. He invited some guys for the off, from the office, probably. They're all there. It's all prim and proper. The house is all neat, neat and tidy. Jesus is there as a kind of local rabbi. They think some people reckon he's a prophet. Some people call him a rabbi. They've invited Jesus along. In walks this woman of the city who was a sinner. So there's a bit of a tension there, I think. The violins would start playing, I think, if this was a film. Now, she's clearly known to the party. They refer to her a number of times as a sinner. So the people in the room know who she is. Simon's clearly got a very poor view of her. He doesn't speak well of her. It's reckoned she was probably a prostitute, although Luke doesn't say that. So anyway, it's a bit of a scandal anyway. It's a bit of a scandal that she's walked in. Verse 37. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the pharisee 's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. OK, pause again. so this is the scene now she 's got this alabaster flask now what 's that all about so well, first of all she 'd previously encountered jesus, and we 'll see that as the passage unfolds this wasn 't the first time that she 'd come into contact with Jesus, and she knew she, he was going to be at the pharisee 's house she 'd heard this, so she gets an alabaster jar. So what's that all about? Now, some writers, bit of debate about this, some writers think it was like a tool of the trade for her business. Um, clean water was in short supply, so cleanliness wasn't top of the list. So body odour was probably a factor in life. And in the kind of work she did, that would be even more of a factor. So she had an alabaster jar. Alabaster's porous. You put perfume in it, and it kind of leaks out. So it's like a sort of first-century air freshener. So she'd, ha- she'd have this wither, and things wouldn't smell so bad, I guess. So she had this alabaster jar. And um, uh, one thing is, it would be very costly. These, these things wouldn't be cheap. So it's quite precious to her. And then you, you might ask, what's she doing there in the first place, in this kind of august company? Why is this, this woman of the city there? Well, the way things worked there, if, if you were kind of the great and the good and you were having a dinner party, you'd invite your friends, they'd be around the table. But you would then kind of open the doors to anybody and everybody who could then sort of fill the edges of the room. Or if you were outside, they'd fill the edges of the courtyard and the idea is that you're so great and good and mighty and just being in your presence is actually a privilege and an honour for these poor people that you'd you'd kind of invite them in and say yeah, come and benefit from hearing our wonderful conversation, come and benefit from being in my presence, it's quite a pious way of looking at things, but actually at the end, the great and the good would stand up and go somewhere else and the poor people would come and eat all the leftover food, so it kind of worked, but significantly the, the Pharisee would want to be seen as somebody that was kind of sharing the bounty that he had with all these poor people so it would be a kind of you know optically it would be important for him that these people were there and that's how come she came to be in this gathering she wasn't invited she just came in off the street as anybody could so that's the scene set now for the action verse 38 and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment such a such a graphic scene such a graphic scene So your guests would arrive. You're having a dinner party. Your guests would arrive. They've got sandals on their feet. They've been walking down the road, walking down the paths. The paths aren't like tarmac or concrete. You know, they're just whatever. And they're sharing those paths with donkeys and horses and cattle and mules and all kinds of animals. So they're dusty. They arrive. Their feet are a bit dirty and smelly and sweaty. And they're kind of covered in whatever they find on the road. You know, animal byproducts, I guess. And so when your guests turn up, what happens is, you would, if, if you've got a real honoured VIP, you'd, you'd actually get on your knees as the host and you'd wash their feet. That's what you'd do. If you had kind of, not two VIP people, just normal people, you'd probably get one of your servants to wash the feet. If you had just the rank and file, you'd just give them some water. I think they'd wash their own feet. That's fine. We'd read later on, Jesus was afforded none of those privileges, didn't even get a bowl of water to wash his feet. So she's standing there. She's weeping the tears from her eyes. I mean, when I've cried, it's like, you know, a few drops. She's weeping so much that the tears are wetting Jesus' feet such that she needs to wipe her feet, his feet with her hair. That's the extent of it. It's, like a, it's a beautiful scene of devotion, isn't it? She's at, uh, she's at Jesus' feet. She's deliberately come. She's suffered quite a bit of shame to get through the door. People are looking down their nose at her. But she's come because she loves Jesus. Jesus is here. And just she can't contain herself. She just weeps. Weeps. And the tears on his feet. She's wiping his feet. It's a beautiful scene of devotion. But don't miss how offensive this is as well. Firstly, she's a sinner. I mean, in the room, that's a big deal. Because these Pharisees don't consider themselves sinners. Jesus is letting her cry on his feet. Jesus is letting, him, letting her touch him and wipe his feet. So th- those things are offensive. Feet were dirty. She's a sinner. This is like great and good company. These things are offensive. Then she lets her hair down. Now, letting your hair down in public was a no-no in that culture. Some women only ever let their hair down once on their married night in front of their husband. That was it. Otherwise, your hair was up. That was kind of... That was that was kind of how how society worked. So this was shameful in itself. She didn't care, though, did she? She wasn't thinking about outward appearances. She wasn't thinking about others' opinions or her reputation. Jesus is there. She's kissing his feet. She'd taken the perfume. She'd poured it on his feet. There were no words used. She doesn't speak. This isn't a speaking part in the play for this woman. No words are used. But her expression of love could not have been louder nobody in the room misunderstood that this woman adored Jesus nobody misunderstood what was going on just a sincere outpouring of worship and love and gratitude unhurried unashamed unconcerned about anybody else in the room she will have made a huge impression on the gathered party It's a beautiful expression of love for Jesus, and yet it was so offensive to everybody else in the room. What a a tension that we're seeing there. And why does she do it? Why this kind of extended display, this weeping, the anointing with perfume? She does it, as it says in the passage, because her many sins are forgiven. That's why she does it. Yeah, Jesus is dishonoured. Simon's dishonoured Jesus, not even washing his feet. Jesus is at the table with dirty feet. Dishonour. That's an offence to her. So that would be a motivator. But primarily, she's motivated because she's a forgiven sinner. That's what motivates her. That's why she's doing this. These are tears of gratitude and joy. She knew her sins, which were many, were forgiven. This is the response to forgiveness this is the response to forgiveness this is what it looks like when you're forgiven and you respond it's adoration of Jesus what a model for worship unhurried, unashamed (coughs) unconcerned about anybody else in the room I'm challenged to think when was the last time I worshipped like that I really am this does presuppose a previous encounter doesn't it this woman's used to looking at men and seeing in their eyes lust. That's the kind of a normal day at the office for her. But in Jesus' eyes, she sees compassion for her, for her lost soul. In contrast to the Pharisee, in him, she sees you know, legalistic, judgmental teaching. In Jesus, she sees forgiveness for her many sins She's forgiven by him. Jesus declares publicly what he's apparently already communicated to her previously. Her sins, which were many, are forgiven. So her response to forgiveness is true worship. It's an honest encounter with Jesus. All the barriers are down. She doesn't care now. She's not thinking about what she looks like. People's perception. This is, not, this is what an honest encounter with Jesus looks like for her. An honest sinner forgiven, worshipping Jesus. That's what's going on here. No pretense, no keeping up appearances, no pretending, no hiding. Jesus, you know my heart and you've forgiven me. That's what she's saying. I'm yours and yours alone. Here in the woman's heart, a wonderful response to forgiveness. Let's move on. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. So the scene shifts. It's a close-up of Simon's face now. You can see the anguish and the thinking, what's going on in his mind. He's really unimpressed with this display of affection. Not appreciative at all of this woman's actions. He's offended by what she's been doing, honouring Jesus. He viewed the woman with disdain and disgust to start with, and now she's been doing all this in his house. It's a scandal. But worse than that, look at Jesus. He's he's condoning her behavior. This guy I've invited to dinner just doesn't know how to behave in my house. For Simon, there's no grace in his theology. There's no grace in his heart. There's only judgment. His attitude to Jesus was, he isn't even a true prophet. I'm not even going to give him credit for that. Because he doesn't know that this woman's a sinner. (laughs) Simon thinks, Jesus treats her as if her past doesn't matter, as if her previous sins don't matter. He thinks, if the sins of my past don't matter, well, wouldn't that mean that the future looks pretty bleak? Because people are going to be morally untethered. That won't do in society. She'll continue sinning, falsely believing that she's got a clear conscience. For Simon, this whole idea of forgiveness is a stench and an offence. It's not fair. Here's the offence of forgiveness. If the response to forgiveness is in the woman's heart, the offence of forgiveness is in Simon's heart. He thinks, what's the motivation for living a good life if there is no punishment? He thinks, furthermore, if she's acceptable after all that she's done, what does that say about all the work I've done to get to where I am today? That's just been a waste of time. I've been qualifying all my life And now she's given a wild card. She gets in for free. It devalues all the credit I've built up in my life, thinks Simon. People will behave as if, well, however they please. And good, righteous people like me won't get rewarded. This is the offence of forgiveness. If this is your heart, forgiveness is just an offence. Let's read on. Verse 40. Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. (laughs) What a scary verse. (laughs) What a scary verse. This jumped off the page and hit me. I just couldn't get past this verse. Firstly, notice Simon didn't voice his criticism of Jesus. Simon was thinking this stuff. He was thinking Jesus wasn't a prophet. But Jesus was a prophet like no other. Jesus knew the woman's heart. Jesus knew Simon's heart. Jesus knew Simon's thoughts. We don't know the tone of how this is said, so I don't want to read too much into it. Got to be careful there. But we do know how the story unfolds. So we know it's not going to work out very well for Simon. I just wonder what he thinks. If it was me, if it was me, I was in Simon's shoes, I'd be terrified. Simon, I've got something to say to you. I'd be swallowing hard. Oh my goodness, Jesus has got something to say to me. But Simon doesn't even believe he's a prophet. So he's probably not fussed, really. He's probably pretty relaxed. Yeah, say it, teacher. Whatever. I'm guessing that Simon would be at the head of the table, the host. I'm guessing Jesus would be down the end of the table, a kind of lowly guest. So this conversation may be happening across the table. This is all speculation. (laughs) But if it is... That's a cross that everyone can hear it now, can't they? So we're out in public now. Simon, I've got something to say to you. Say it, teacher. The, the, The stakes are getting a bit higher. So tension's ratcheting up, I think, in this scene. As I was preparing this talk, I was struck by how terrifying that verse was. But then actually this week, God spoke to me in a different way about the same verse. I love it when God uses one thing in the Bible just to speak so many ways to you. Um... But he said this, um, the point is, I've I've read this passage a lot as I've been preparing this sermon, because you do. And then it's a well-known passage. So over the years, I've probably read it loads, or I've heard it loads, I don't know, dozens of times. Maybe even hundreds, I don't know. I've been a Christian a very long time, clearly. (laughs) But I felt God say, Paul, I've got something to say to you. Wow. It wasn't the kind of scary Way I think he'd addressed Simon. It was, Paul, I've got something to say to you. I felt God say, look, you've read this passage dozens of times, but I've got something to say to you. There's truth here for you. So, you know, don't worry about reading the same passage again and again. I've got something to say to you. It's God's word. It's alive, it's fresh, it's living. It's here to revive me, it's here to refresh me. Paul, I've got something to say to you. If you've got a Bible in your hand now, God's saying, I've got something to say to you. If you haven't got a Bible in your hand, he's saying that anyway. I've got something to say to you. Insert your name. It's not Simon. Nigel, I've got something to say to you. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. Andrew, I've got something to say to you. This is personal. Carol, I've got something to say to you. Put your name in that that sentence because God's got something to say to you. He wants you to hear whoever you are. He's got something to say to you every day from his word. Verse 41, let's read on. Now, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to them, you've judged rightly. I can sense the offense lurking just underneath the surface here again. This, this time, Simon might just be beginning to get the picture. Might just be beginning to get the picture. He might just be understanding that Jesus is saying, he's one of the debtors and he can't repay his debt. That's the point of the story there for him. See, God's the lender. Simon and the woman are the two debtors in this story. And the debt is their sin. In the story, neither can repay the debt, large or small, it doesn't matter. The debt is unrepayable by definition. Repaying the debt is necessary for any debtor, but neither can pay. And Jesus holds up a mirror to Simon to see if he can see himself. Simon, there are are two debtors here. One of them is you. Do you see that? That's what Jesus is saying. He just goes over Simon's head. He just fails to see that. I don't know why he fails to see that why do we fail to see our sin sometimes i wonder for simon two little things occurred to me one is later on in luke's gospel there's jesus tells a parable of, of two people praying a pharisee and a tax collector i don't know if you remember that story and the, the pharisee says i thank you god that i'm a holy man i'm not i'm not grubby and dirty i tithe and i i fast twice a week and i'm not like this tax collector Comparing ourselves to others deeply unhelpful for helping us to be objective about our sin. Because it's irrelevant. The two debtors don't compare how much each other owes. It's irrelevant. The debt is to the lender. Your sin is with reference to God. Don't compare yourself with other people. It's just not helpful. You'll get a false sense of security. Don't do that. And the other thing I think maybe the Pharisee's done in that story with the tax collector. He's created a God that he can live with but he's not in debt to. He says, well, I've, I've paid my tithes. I've fasted twice a week. I've turned up to church on a Sunday. I've, um, I've helped set up. I turn up life group once a week. So I'm, I'm doing quite well. Therefore, I'm probably acceptable to God. So that's a good thing. Tick. That lets me off the hook. Don't create a God for whom you're acceptable. Don't, don't set the threshold just beneath you where you are. I think that's what the Pharisee did. And that's why he wasn't able, able to be objective about his sin. The point is, neither of them could repay. It doesn't matter how respectable you are. I wonder if the penny is beginning to drop for Simon. The truth is, Simon, the woman, you, me, we all need the gracious cancellation of our sin. Just like we saw in the story, the lender needs to cancel the debt. And with sin, that's the only basis of our acceptance before God. This is the necessity of forgiveness. It's universal it's you, me, it's everybody. It's Simon, it's the woman. We all need forgiveness. It's so necessary. It's the only way we can get right with God. The key to loving God is discovering that at the cross our sins are forgiven. They've been graciously cancelled. That, that kindles love and rekindles love again and again in our hearts. And that, and that overflows in worship like it did with the woman. That's how it works. A healthy sign of a Christian is someone that grows increasingly dependent on God. As we grow, we become increasingly independent of our parents and whatnot. We, we, we grow up, we become independent. As a Christian grows, a healthy sign is you become more dependent on God. You spend more time gazing at the extent of your forgiveness and just going, yes, God, look what you've done for me. So as you, as you grow as a Christian, you become more dependent in that sense. Simon showed no love for Jesus because he didn't view himself as a sinner needing a saviour. That was his problem. That's why he was rude in the first place to Jesus. He didn't perceive the need for mercy. He wasn't sinning the way the woman was sinning. That's true. He was just a more sophisticated sinner. (laughs) He sinned in more respectable ways. His sin was less obvious, perhaps more socially acceptable. But it's no less serious in the sight of God. You need to hear that. You might not be a drugs dealer or, you know, you might not be a sex worker or um, whatever it is. But your sin is no more acceptable in the sight of God this morning. I mean, we've seen for Simon, there's pride, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, pity. That's just the ones we've seen. And these sins aren't somehow overlooked by God. He owed a debt he couldn't pay. And if anything, it was more difficult for him because that's what self-righteousness does. It blinds you to being objective about your sin. So one one of his sins, this kind of self-righteousness thing, that was just hindering him being objective about his sin in the first place. But he needs forgiveness. The sinful woman needs forgiveness. It's exactly the same necessity of sin. Now, let's just do a little detour here. Avoid a trap. Avoid a trap it will make a lot of sense for you. The woman makes a great start. She's, kind of, she's recently been forgiven. So she comes, she worships, she knows the extent of her forgiveness because it's such a recent transaction. It's such a recent exchange. And, that, and that's fantastic. I mean, I'm sure lots of us can relate to that. We become Christians. We throw ourselves at Jesus' feet. We can't believe it. Oh my goodness, I've been forgiven all my sins. Wow, awesome. And then, miraculously, as time goes on, God begins to change us we find we're sinning less frequently it's amazing our lives are changed and actually the extent of our sinning we're not doing such grubby stuff as we used to do we're sinning less frequently kind of less seriously it's amazing God's changing us and the danger is we become like Simon we become a bit self-righteous oh, I'm not as bad as I was I'm not as bad as some people don't fall into that trap don't never lose that woman's heart that's where you need to be that's where your heart needs to be Never lose that heart of gratitude for your salvation, for your forgiveness. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. The room goes quiet. This feels like the only conversation in town now. Jesus highlights the offence that Simon's um, put before him. He criticises Simon's hospitality, which is offensive in itself. It's just gearing up, this scene. Oh, the offence of forgiveness again. The offence of forgiveness. In front of all his guests, the offence of forgiveness. is just kind of being rubbed into Simon's wound, if you like. Do you see the woman? Jesus says to Simon. It's clear, Simon doesn't see the way God sees. He doesn't see what God sees. He doesn't see the woman's heart. He doesn't see his own heart. He's clueless about that. He doesn't perceive his need for salvation. He doesn't perceive the need to have his sins forgiven. He doesn't see the way God sees. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. I'm just going to skip on a bit here. Just uh, hang on a second. (laughs) Let's just look at that verse. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. Don't make the mistake a lot of people have made. A lot of people have read that and got it the wrong way round. They've said... Her sins are forgiven for she loved much. They read it as her sins are forgiven because she loved much. They get the message that you've got to love Jesus a lot in order to get forgiven. Because that's how you could read that in English, isn't it? It's not true. You look at the rest of Scripture, you look at the story of the debtors. Your love does not come before Jesus' forgiveness. That's not the order of events. You can't love Jesus enough for him to forgive you. That's not how it works. You need to come to Jesus, be forgiven, and then your love is a response. What this means is, her sins, which were many, were forgiven. And the evidence of that is, she loved much. Yeah, Your love is a response to being forgiven. That's the order of events. That's how it works. Why am I telling you that? Because we want you to be more and more in love with Jesus. We want you to spend more time looking at how you've been forgiven and have your heart wooed by Jesus again. That's what we want for you because the best place you can be is at Jesus' feet. That's why we're, that's why we're, we're, we're telling you this stuff. We say, get your salvation. Have a look at the extent of your forgiveness. Go, oh my goodness, that's, that's what Jesus has done for me. I'm going to fall on my knees and worship. That's why we're. That's why we're emphasising this this morning. I'm just going to um, cut to the end. Cut to the end of this this passage. So notice at any moment Jesus could have said, "Woman, be gone out of here! You're breaking this law, this social taboo. You're um, a sinner of this city. Be gone!" And the room might have applauded. Ah, oh, well done, Rabbi. Good teaching there. Fantastic, marvelous job. And all of the guilt and shame and, and fear and judgment would have been on her, wouldn't it? She'd have gone home. All of that guilt and judgment and shame would be on her. Now, what's played out in this last couple of lines is like a little sketch of the whole story. It illustrates the whole story of forgiveness. Because Jesus doesn't call her out. He doesn't say, you're a shameful woman. He receives her worship. And he assures her Of her forgiveness. He says. Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him. Began to say among themselves. Who is this that even forgives sins? You see what happens there. All of of the judgment. That they're giving to her. He goes your sins are forgiven. Attention on Jesus. Who is this Jesus that even forgives sins? All of that judgment. Is on him now. And he says. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She leaves that place free, completely free of all the judgment that would have been hers. She would have walked out of there like a stained woman. And all of that attention is now focused on Jesus. Well, that's a little cameo, it's a little portrayal of the gospel. We swap that freedom that is Jesus's because he never sinned. He's righteous before God. And he gives us that righteousness. He gave it to the woman. She walked out, a free woman. And all of the condemnation that was being heaped on her is now on Jesus. They're all going, who is this guy that even forgives sins? They're going to leave the place. They're not even going to talk about the woman because that's not the big story anymore. You know, all that stuff was a bit of a sideshow. The scandal in the room is that Jesus is saying he forgives sins. And that's what Luke wants us to focus on. This story is about Jesus and him forgiving our sins. That's what it's all about. The indignation's on him, and the peace is on her. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what's on offer. That's what forgiveness is all about. And as, as we said, the response to that is we worship. Because, because we're free. We're set free of that. We've, oh my goodness, Lord, you've done that for me. You've taken all my judgment, and you've set me free. Thank you for that assurance. So that's what we're going to do now. If we can get the band up, please. We're going to worship. That's our response to this this morning. Now, I'm conscious that some of you may have a different response. God may be tugging a different string in your heart this morning. You may be feeling you want to, you want to pray about that. You want, you, want to, you want to chat to somebody about that? Because this is throwing up all sorts of things, this passage. So we're going to have the prayer teams on both sides, I think yeah and you may just as we're singing you may just want to step out and talk to somebody those guys are superb they know how to chat they know how to pray they can, they can really help you tremendously helpful if your response is worship that's what we're going to do now if your response to this is you want to do something else why not slide out to the sides just as we're singing and um, do business with God let me just pray and then we're going to sing is that all right